You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Uh, I just came across something very interesting, and I want to share it with the listeners. There have been recent uh, reports in the media that indicate that and the Justice Ministry are considering a law to establish an ad hoc court to try the Hamas prisoners who've been captured, who on October, October 7th, sexual violence and torture and kidnapping and all kinds of other horrors that go beyond what we typically associate with terrorism or war crimes. Some crimes, since some crimes were committed within Israel, Israel should prosecute the, prosecute the perpetrators, but many legal expert, experts believe that the existing legal frameworks for court proceedings against these new criminals are unsuitable. Therefore, it will be necessary to establish a special court that will emphasize the severity of the crimes and serve as an educational tool for both Israel's and for other people around the world. Israel does have existing laws to try terrorists for crimes committed within the borders and also in Judea and Samaria. Now, trials do take place in both the general court system and in the military courts. Terrorists can be prosecuted under existing laws. We have laws like the penal law, the military justice law, the counterterrorism law, and all kinds of laws relating to arrest and imprisonment of illegal combatants. These laws define terrorism, they set penalties, and they establish a framework uh, used today for a trial of terrorists. Now, Israel's criminal court system and the military justice system include all the necessary institutions for prosecuting prisoners of war. Now, these courts have really extensive experience. They have professional judges, they have professional prosecutors, defense attorneys, and all the required administrative infrastructure to do these trials. However, the prosecuting Hamas prisoners within the general or military court system appears to be, according to the experts, appears to be unsuitable. A unique crime demands a special trial to endure, ensure that justice is served and even for educa- just for educational purposes. A special law and a special court would underscore the uniqueness of the crime to committed on October 7th. This trial is not just a typical murder case. Israeli courts deal with many cases involving rape and murder, but now we're talking about a a trial that involved unimaginable horrific actions, including murdering groups of bound children, burning babies in ovens, 
shooting or kidnapping children or watch their parents being tortured and murdered, rape, sadistic acts of murder and kidnapping. That's all happened on the 7th of October. And these actions go beyond the scope of war crimes. And are, they essentially are a stain on humanity. In addition, what, there's also the situation where the prisoners of Hamas are not soldiers of a recognized army or country. They are simply zealous whose ultimate goal is to destroy Israel. The motivation beyond these acts is not purely criminal, but rather it's driven by religious fanaticism. There is adequate evidence that the October 7th attack was part of a plan involving Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas to destroy Israel. That's what it was all about. A special court hearing would also provide survivors of the massacre an opportunity to appear and be heard in public. You have to, we, we can recall the opening speech of Chief Prosecutor Gordon Hauser of the Eichmann trial back in 1961. He said the following, Where I stand before you, judges of Israel, to prosecute Adolf Eichmann, I do not stand alone. With me at this hour stand six million prosecutors. That's what he said at the time. The, uh, there's a gentleman named Telford, Ta Telford Taylor, who was the prosecutor at the Nazi doctor's trial uh, uh, back in 1946. For murders, tortures, and other atrocities commit committed in the name of medical science, to their murderers, these wretched people are not individuals at all. These victims of these crimes are numbered among the anonymous millions who met death at the hands of the Nazis and whose fate is a hideous blot on the page of modern history. Prosecution of these defendants is owed to the victims and to the parents and the children of the victim. And that is also true today. But, but there are, by the way, parallel historic trials that address crimes committed against the Jewish people. In 1950, Israel enacted what's called the Nazi and Nazi Collaboration Law, which provide a legal framework for prosecuting crimes against Jews by Nazi Germany. The planning paid off, and Eichmann was tried in 1960 according to this law. German courts prosecuted a number of Nazi war criminals in what is called the Frankfurt-Auschwitz trial back in 1963. And this trial, which is very highly publicized, most of the Nazi war criminals, many of whom held senior post-war government and, position, and business positions in West Germany, were convicted of war crimes. This trial exposed the German public at that time to the horrors of the Holocaust. World War II was the first major conflict where victors conducted trials and punished war criminals who had committed horrific war crimes which were outside the scope of regular warfare. For example, the Nuremberg trials of the Nazi war criminals were 
and the Tokyo war crimes trial of Japanese war criminals, these were trials under laws that didn't exist before the trials were held. The uh, Another uh, relevant trial, well, not concerning the Jews of Israel, was the trial of Saddam Hussein of Iraq back in 2003. And... Uh, the, uh, he was tried by the Iraqi interim government for crimes against humanity while in office dating back to the 1980s. <coughs> the Iraq provisional government established the special tribunal made up of Iraqi judges. Saddam and other defendants were tried. He was convicted and sentenced to death, and he was hanged. An American named... Uh, Tony Snow, who represented the White House, expressed approval of the procedure and praised the Iraqi people for replacing the rule of a tyrant with the rule of law. So another reason for a specific law is that it could include provisions for the death penalty, even though it is not allowed under existing Israeli court. Israel has no death penalty today. And... Uh, I don't know exactly how uh, Adolf Eichel got the death penalty. It was a special law in his case. By the way, um, if there is a, if a law came uh, for, for about Hamas, it could also include provisions allowing those injured by Hamas massacre and their survivors to, to sue countries sheltering Hamas leaders. So uh, there's a lot of implications here. However, the uh, officials here and, and the, uh, have said that they have to be very careful of the challenges associated with establishing a special court to try Hamas criminals because a special trial requires the most talented, experienced state attorneys to handle the prosecutions. The only comparable instance was the Eichmann trial back in the early 1960s. There's an additional difficulty, as a matter of fact, because the question is, who do you try in a special court? And you can have an experience, for example, we have these all these movies of terrorists, terrorists doing terrible things, but you really need clear evidence that a specific prisoner committed a particular crime. Some have already confessed to murdering Israelis, and there are also recorded phone calls made by specific terrorists bragging about murdering or raping Israelis. Now, these are obviously people who can be clearly be tried in a special court. Another situation involves terrorists who participated in the attack, but for whom there is no specific evidence of their actions. In participation, is partition, participation enough to warrant prosecution if there is a special law? So it, there are problems. Now, there are also Hamas soldiers involved in combats against Israel who were captured, and there are Hamas terrorists fighting to destroy Israel, and this could be considered a war crime. So finding an Israeli defense attorney willing to represent the Hamas would also be a very challenging problem. 
there are pro-Palestinian NGOs that represent or provide representation for terrorists. They'd be reluctant to defend those who committed those crimes on October 7th. If an Israeli defense attorney cannot be found, maybe they'll have to bring an attorney from abroad. So that's also a problem. Now, some might argue that establishing a special court diminishes the uniqueness of the Eichmann trial 60 years ago. No trial can truly compare to the Eichmann trial, which presented the Holocaust in full detail and horror, capturing the attention of the Israeli public and an international interest. The Eichmann trial was educational, it highlighted the immensity of the Holocaust and the importance of our saying never again. However, this does not mean there cannot be other unique events, horrendous crimes of a lesser scale that really we need a special trial. For example, the trial of Hamas leaders would be that kind of a special trial. Now, it could be these people wouldn't carry the same weight as the Achman trial, but the important point is it would serve as an educational tool allowing Israelis and people around the world to know about Hamas terrorism and their inhumanity and what it was doing. It would take place when highly political international organizations are calling for trials against Israelis for conducting what they define, we define as a defense of war. But they say that it's offensive, so we have a problem there also. I think we really need a specific law, really a specific law, establishing a special court to try Hamas criminals. Because such a move would specify the court's jurisdiction and its introductory explanation should reference laws passed after Israeli independence related to Nazi war crimes. So a law like that would probably be upheld by the Israeli Supreme Court. Another obstacle to a specific law in court is the current political and legal climate. While the Attorney General is widely respected, the authority is to recommend that the government approve enacting a law to establish a special court. At the political level, it would be difficult to find a highly respected senior jurist in the present government in Israel here to justify establishing a special court and to persuade world opinion of the credibility of such a court. <coughs> because right now, the Justice Minister in Israel, the Chairman of the Knesset Constitutional Law and Justice Committee, are involved in very heavy political uh, fighting about restructuring of the Israeli court system. They don't have the national or, inter- or the international status to undertake exceptional legal measures. It seems that a special court would only be considered reliable if the judges were appointed by the President of the Supreme Court 
and not by a politician. That's a, that's a big problem. And finally, I think that a special law in the court must would have to be implemented pretty quickly. The problem is that our government, our Knesset, is not known for acting quickly. However, during the war, some government ministries have actually acted promptly, much more than they did in peacetime, in order to address challenges within their individual jurisdiction. It's possible that the Justice Minister and the Chairman of the Knesset Law Committee would redirect their efforts from the, the what they're doing now, which has involved the independent court system, and they would focus the laws and regulations relating to this war effort, uh, the, especially if, the do, if they were directed to do so by the Prime Minister. So it would be very nice if there would be a special court, and if they prepare, prepare for it, and they should prepare for it starting now. Uh, so if Israel began planning now for the future, it will be prepared and it will be successful. Right now, we are in the midst of a war that we do not know how long it will take. Could be months, probably be months. And therefore, if we're going to have some kind of judi judicial system to try these terrible people, we'll have to start working on it now. So when things calm down a little bit and these people can be brought to justice, there will be a system set up to see that justice is indeed enacted. And there's no doubt in my mind, as I said, Israel does not have a death penalty, but they pushed through a special law to uh, enact a death penalty against uh, uh, Eichmann. And the people they're picking up now, these Hamas people, are certainly, they're certainly, it would be justified to, to uh, as a matter of fact, I wonder, these people, uh, the question is whether or not the death penalty would be too good for them put them out of their misery. These people, they deserve something worse than a death penalty. I don't know. They've really done terrible crimes against the Jewish people and against humanity. And anyhow, I just wanted to share with the listeners the, these thoughts um, based upon a couple of articles that I read. Since these are very special times, we have to take uh, special measures to ensure that these criminals are punished. It's our responsibility, and to not to do so would really be avoiding or shirking our responsibilities. Let's let us hope that something like this, this is done. A special court set up to try these terrible, terrible criminals. And as I said a moment ago, it would be hard to find anybody who to defend them. And uh, I would question. Anybody who would defend them, if we brought somebody from outside the country to defend them, I, I think that that also be very hard to find such a person. At any rate, uh, I'll be back after the break. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. 
The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. In this segment of the program, I want to touch upon a couple items dealing with what's happening now, we can be pretty confident that Israel's society will be very different in the future. It'll be dramatically different after what happened on October 7th. Of course, we don't know how it's going to be different. What is that change going to look like? The people now are heroically defending the country. Before uh, before October 7th, there were people who were angry at the government. They said they wouldn't serve in the reserves. Officers, people with you know, wartime experience, patriots, they said they wouldn't serve. But as soon as October 7th occurred, everybody ran back to serve the country. So, in a sense, this generation will probably recreate civic society. It will probably lead to new movements, political movements, and the country is facing economic, physical, emotional, and I think even spiritual renewal. There are hundreds if not thousands of bereaved families. There are communities that are uprooted from their homes, living in hotels, living in temporary quarters. There are families that are hostages. The truth of the matter is that all these people will likely be a powerful social force for change, and perhaps not along the traditional political or religious lines. I think there's going to be a new lineup politically. Israel society has shown an enormous resilience in response to these terrible events since October 7th. And you cannot know where it will lead us. If this tragedy generates a new confidence and a new optimism, with a shift from the politics of what's been going on, then it could be that the future of Israel society might be brighter. So uh, we have too much to look forward to, I believe. This is going to be a great change in Israel. Now, having said that, I want to move on to a couple of different subjects when I don't get full attention. Um... And, and I want to say a few words about the, these uh, big pro-Palestinian strikes that are taking place outside the country, particularly in New York and in, in London. 
The thousands of pro-Palestinian protesters demonstrated in mid-Manhattan, and they shut down Grand Central Station, as well as vandalizing and chanting in front of the New York Times building in Times Square. And they scattered editions of a fake newspaper with the words, the New York War Crimes written on it. And they accused the media of complicity and genocide against the Palestinians. The, um, the word lies was written across the doors of the New York Times headquarters in New York. They protested and they read the names of thousands of Palestinians, Palestinians that they claim have been killed in, in Gaza, including, by the way, 36 journalists whose deaths have been confirmed but since they started the war. So, uh, because it is, the, uh, the services at the, the Grand Central Station were limited. And uh, it was so well organized. I'm very curious who organized it. The organizers had released a detailed guide to help students schedule, recruit, organize, and gain administration, administrative consent for the walkout. So, uh, it's interesting. Somebody organized this pretty well in New York, and it was anti-Jewish, anti-Israel, and uh, here right in the heart of New York. You know, I was raised to think that New York is pretty much a Jewish city, but I, it's no longer true. They, uh, they claimed Israel killed the people, and they, they bombed the hospitals. On, it was very bad. The... Uh, the, uh, the, the there's there's increased anti-Semitism and things like this are not good, not for America, not for the Jewish community in America. By the way, apropos to that, the uh, it was announced in Montreal in uh, Canada by the police that they're investigating a disturbing incident in which two Jewish schools were targeted by gunfire two weeks ago. <coughs> And that's also something new. The people who don't like what's happening here in Gaza are shooting at Jewish schools in uh, effects all around the world. So uh, it's interesting. You know, the, the people who are anti-Semites are using what's happening here as an excuse to attack Jews all around the world. And along the same lines, I want to point out something, uh, something else. Itamar Marcus, who uh, is a specialist on, um, he's, he directs something called the uh, Palestinian Meter, Media Watch. He's been doing this for quite a few years. They specialize in seeing what was being said in the uh, Palestinian media. And uh, he came up with an interesting point. He said they're not just terrorists, they're also terrorist multipliers. They sent 2,000 terrorists into Israel on the 7th of October who did all kinds of terrible things. But the, the Palestinian Authority, which does not control Gaza, and Fatah, which does not control Gaza, they're in the, they're in the West Bank, they gave unrestrained support to the massacre done by Hamas. So, in other Palestinian population between behind what Hamas was doing in Gaza. 
A Fatah leader on the official Palestinian Authority television celebrated the massacre of women and babies as a morning of victory and a morning of joy and a morning of pride and called in the name of Fatah to all our Palestinian people to take action and participate in this story of heroism. That's the Fatah radio. <coughs> now keep in mind that Fatah and the Palestinian Authority were kicked out by Hamas about almost 20 years ago. And now what's happening, they missed a unique opportunity to change course, renounce terror, and offer an alternative to the Palestinians. So the, the, uh, the, the, they see themselves as the future. But what happened is they supported this unspeakable barbarism run by their political rival, Hamas. So this really was a unique opportunity for the Palestinian Authority to send a message to the Palestinian people of error. Abbas and the Palestinian Authority and the Fatah could have condemned Hamas, condemned the indescribable horrors, and told their people to make a choice, continue the old way of atrocity and terror, represented by Hamas alone, or choose a new path of peace represented by Fatah alone. And what happened was, Abbas and the Fatah party put themselves firmly behind Hamas and its atrocities, celebrating massacres, and it's just terrible, really. So uh, th they had a chance to separate themselves from took pride in terrorism. And uh, it's interesting, the, when they were pressed by the international community, in particular by the United States, to condemn uh, the atrocities, Abbas refused. He finally issued a mild statement, not, in, not condemning Hamas, but merely saying that Hamas is So apparently, after giving a mild statement, Abbas figured it was too mild. And a few hours later, his statement was removed and replaced by a general statement that the PLO is the sole legitimate representative of the, Jew of the Palestinian people. In other words, the Palestinian Authority had a chance to separate itself from terrorism. Instead, it supported terrorism. So uh, he supported the murder of Israelis. He could have given in to international pressure and condemned the worst atrocities against Jews since the Holocaust. So uh, this time Abbas remained true to his principles. It seemed, and that's the Palestinian Authority. So uh, it's interesting also that after the fighting started, Palestinians marched through the streets of Hebron, Nablus, which are not under Hamas, they're under the Palestinian Authority. They even, uh, the, the Palestinians, uh, Hamas. Also, according to the news reports, the, as the fighting continues, public support for Hamas increases among the Arabs. This past week, there were videos of large marches all across the West Bank supporting Hamas 
these things were being posted on the social media. They even have hundreds of young schoolgirls chanting the, in favor of uh, Hamas, Hello Akbar, blow up the Zionists, strike Tel Aviv, strike Ashkelon, Jihad is our path, the Quran is our savior, death for Allah is our sublime wish. All this is being shouted by kids in the Palestinian Authority. So, by refusing to offer the Palestinians an alternative and uh, and considering what they're doing is heroic, they, they've sent a clear message to Palestinians. According to the Palestinian Authority, the enemy of Hamas, according to them, Hamas is doing the right job and doing it better than the Palestinian Authority itself could do. So ironically, Adas's public response to the atrocities, including, he keeps saying that the PLO is a sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, has pretty much turned into a slogan. The, the, um, it's irrelevant now. In other words, the Palestinian Authority is saying, we're just as bad as, as Hamas is. That's what they're really saying. By the Palestinian Authority, and Fatah, with their own actions, have handed the loyalty of the people in the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority, are now going to go to Hamas, because even the Palestinian Authority supports Hamas. Because now Hamas has recognized the uncontested representative, not only of, of uh, the Palestinian people, but of Abbas also. So these are the people that the Americans, for example, are pushing us to make a two-state solution with. So they, they've revealed, the Palestinian authorities revealed in its response to what's happening that it is even publicly no better than Hamas. So all this pressure to a two-state solution makes no sense. Who will be the head of this other state beside Israel? People who are like Hamas? So all these people around the world, particularly the American government, talking about a two-state solution, are simply wrong. And obviously we can't allow ourselves to be pushed into a two-state solution. The bottom line is, 30 years ago, the misguided leadership of Israel brought the terrorists back from North Africa, the leader of the terrorists together with the heads of the Israeli government won the Nobel Peace Prize for doing so. And uh, it's really interesting. I wrote a letter to the Jerusalem Post, which I didn't publish. I don't know if I mentioned it in my last program, but I'll share it with the leaders now, with the listeners now. I wrote a letter that Back in 1923, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to a, a Swedish guy named Nansen because he separated the Greek population from the Turkish population. After the Second World War and some wars in the Balkans, the Greeks and the Turks were busy killing each other 
and he came up with the eye of the idea of separating them, and he took a lot of Greeks from Turkey, put them back to to Greece, took a lot of Turks from Greece, took put them back to Turkey. This guy Nansen uh, arranged all that. He has a very strange. His first name I think was Friedhoff, Friedhoff Nansen, and he won the 1923 Nobel Prize for separating the uh, Greeks and the Turks to avoid uh, bloodshed. And uh, back in 1993, the uh, two Israelis and an arch-terrorist uh, Arafat were given the Peace Prize for bringing two peoples together. They brought the terrorist leadership back from North Africa, planted them in Gaza and the West Bank, and now we are living with the results of that terrible mistake. I'm just curious. I don't know. The uh, the 20th century, the Peace Prize was offered only only once for for uh, moving populations apart and once for moving populations together. I'm curious what happens. I I don't know. In the history of the Nobel Prize, if the Nobel Prize is awarded to somebody and it turns out that what the somebody did was a great mistake, does he have to give back the Nobel Prize medal and the money that he got? The money, the Nobel Prize is also associated with money. So the arch-terrorist Yasser Arafat and two Israeli politicians got the Nobel Peace Prize, and now we are living with the results of what they did. They moved terrorists back from North Africa, planted them right down our throats, and now we're in the middle of a war caused by what they did. So uh, maybe, uh, I don't know what happens with the Peace Prize. Maybe uh, they, they, they have to in some way get rid of it. I want to close this uh, segment by saying something that Israel is great. Even though we're in a fight now, we try to be ethical. In the face of staggering barbarism, Israel is making every effort to minimize Palestinian civil casualties. Israel defends Jews' right to live, and there's a devastating cause of that defense. And that part of that devastating cause is innocent Palestinians are also killed. Obviously, the death of innocent Palestinians is the fault of Hamas. However, obviously, we feel the sorrow of every loss of our own fighters. But we must persist because we know we are saving the lives of innocent millions. In Israel, and in other places, if Hamas continued unchecked, there would be thousands of innocent lives lost, including Palestinians. There's no two ways about that. The truth of the matter is, when you think about it, by destroying Hamas, we're not only saving Jewish lives, we're also saving Palestinian lives. Because if once we get rid of Hamas, there'll be no more wars where even innocent Palestinians are killed. So if you, if you happen to be an innocent Palestinian, 
you should thank Israelis for what we're doing, strange as it may seem. On this section of uh, my program, I want to talk about several items that are really under the headlines. You don't hear much about them or anything at all about them in light of what's happening here and our struggle against the terrorists and the effects it's having on people elsewhere. So the first item I want to talk about is what's called a general, general, generational fracture uh, among Jewish families. An example I saw had to do with the Philadelphia Jewish community. And since I'm, I'm from Philadelphia myself, I found it of interest, and I want to share what it says with the listeners. The... Uh, What's happening is, according to reports, there's a growing generational rift that's been highlighted in Jewish communities across Philadelphia and actually across the entire United States in the recent weeks. National polls have found that younger Americans are far more skeptical than their older counterparts regarding the Israeli government and the United States' relationship with Israel. And as a matter of fact, in some cases, differences by age were even starker than differences by party. A Wall Street Journal uh, poll found that only 40% of respondents under 30 said that the U.S. has the responsibility to help Israel fight Hamas, compared to more than 70% of people over 65. Even before the most recent violence, young Jewish voters across the United States were more critical of Israel than were older ones. The Jewish Electoral Institute, uh, which is apparently a, um, a democratic organization, conducted a survey back in 2001 to 2021 of 800 Jewish American voters. And the poll found that 80% of those under age 40 compared to just 13% of those over age 64 agree with the statement, Israel is an apartheid state. So it's interesting. What we're finding is Young Jews are considering Israel an apartheid state. And in the Philadelphia area, which has one of the largest Jewish populations in the United States, this generational disconnect has taken the shape of grief and fury and splintering conversations among families who can't see eye to eye on the crisis. The local, there, there is an increasing number of Jewish-led demonstrations against Israel's siege of Gaza. Now let, let's keep in mind, in the last month, Hamas killed over 1,200 people, kidnapped more than 240 people as hostages uh, back on October 7th. According to the latest figures from Israel authority, now, since October 7th, Israel's military has killed about 12,000 people in Gaza, including more than 4,100 children. But all of this is according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry, so the numbers are probably exaggerated. Now, they had a protest and a sit-in at 30th Street Station in Philadelphia last Thursday. It was the big, that's the big uh, Pennsylvania State Railroad Station there. And a lot of the people there 
wore a lot of them Jews, and they wore black T-shirts that said, not in our name, and Jews say, cease fire now. Hundreds of young Jews alongside older Jewish activists demanded that the U.S. government call for a ceasefire. Now, it turns out that in interviews, Philadelphia Jews and their relatives described very heated exchanges in the families the, uh, that veered from the academic about the global history of Judaism, geopolitics, and Middle East, but are highly personal. And families are starting to break apart because their attitude toward what's happened in Israel. They're, um, they're having fierce debates, and uh, it's been described that uh, these things have really never happened before among Jewish families, the generation gap. The older generation sees the Jewish people as perpetually vulnerable, uh, although they go through periods of relative safety. And the best uh, protector, of course, is Israel. And the younger generation, less convinced that a formal nation state is the way to provide safety for the Jews, and they see the Palestinians as the vulnerable population in need of protection. So, uh, obviously, there's, there's a, a diversity of opinion in every generation, and, uh, and some families are largely in agreement or disagreement across generations. The, um, what they're happening now, a lot of families are simply avoiding the subject in order to not create some irreconcilable breach. But I think my own personal feeling, by the way, is that uh, the major problem we have with the younger Jewish generation is that they lack Jewish education. And most of them simply don't know enough about Jewish history to, to have a, a responsible position. Their education lacks the Jewish aspect of the education, and they see things differently. In other words, as I see it, they're Jewish by birth, but not really Jewish by education. And I, I think that's a major problem. It's being played out now in the United States. And the article I saw used Philadelphia as an example, and I just want to share that with the listeners. Now I want to change the topic slightly share with the listeners uh, also something I read the other day by a fellow named Yoram Dory, and he uh, he served as a political advisor to Shimon Peres uh, for about 20 years, and Shimon Peres was a great believer in coexistence, so uh, this fellow Dory came up with some ideas of what should happen after the war is done in Gaza. And uh, I want to share what he said with the listeners. Uh, he's the only one I've seen so far who's written on this topic. He writes that Gaza possesses a, a tremendous economic potential. The, uh, when Israel turned over uh, the, the Gaza Strip to the Palestinians, they could have turned Gaza into an economic haven for the well-being of the residents. Instead, what they did was nothing to improve the quality of life of the residents or to help them really achieve independence, and they actually destroyed everything that the Jews had built there before. So they've had decades of violent and corrupt rule, and hopefully the Israeli army will put an end to that. I don't know how long that'll take, but they really have to do, if we can't get rid of the Gazans, they should have a vision of a different life.
And they have to change the educational system there. And there are those who believe that Gaza has a potential to become the Singapore of the Middle East. The countries like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, for example, with their financial resources, could uh, use to uh, for the benefit of people in Gaza. Obviously, Gaza lacks oil, but it could become the breadbasket in the Middle East. It could produce fruits and vegetables. The uh, there are very nice beaches in Gaza, which attract tourists from all, or, all around the world. And there's a problem of overcrowding, and it could be solved by building artificial islands off the coast of Gaza, and which is implemented in some areas around the world. What they really need is what he calls a Marshall Plan that would bring about the necessary change and foster close relationship with all the people in the area. In other words, if Israel is going to be stuck with Gaza after this war is over, can't just be a refugee camp. It's got to be turned into something productive. And the, the problem is that up until now, people living in Gaza have been undergoing brainwashing, and they harbor deep-seated hatred for Jews and for Israel. The, and they have a they've been led by a murderous and oppressive regime. So. It, it's interesting, uh, uh, you can take a historical fact. In 1945, did anyone imagine that Nazi Germany, responsible for the death of 50 million people, including 6 million Jews, would become a leading nation in Europe, fighting for human rights and accepting hundreds of thousands of foreigners? The, the, the Germany was steeped in became an ally of the United States and of Israel. So the the transformation in the German educational system from hatred to the Jews, uh, now having a liberal and pluralistic education, is due in part to the intervention of the allied powers, especially the United States. So we shouldn't give up hope. Leadership is measured by the ability to change an existing situation. The more dire the situation, the greater the opportunity for significant leadership. So Hamas is going to be eliminated, and the day after Hamas is eliminated will be a tremendous challenge for the whole world. Global leadership, together with the local leadership, both in our region and among our neighbors, could bring about a change that would be good for all of us. So we, we have to come up with a vision for Gaza after the terrorist leadership is kicked out, because if the other countries will not accept these millions of Gazans and they're going to stay there, we have to improve their lives and make them, they themselves, hopeful for the future. That's going to be the challenge after this war is over. I want to repeat something which I think the listeners know, but it's got to be said over and over again, particularly while they're having all these pro-Palestinians demonstrations in America. Hamas, that controls Gaza, is a genocidal, internationally recognized terror organization. Its founding covenant calls for the destruction of Israel 
and the murder of Jews worldwide. Last month's massacre represents an, an existential threat which Israelis of all ages, ages understand quite well. More than 260 young people were murdered at a music festival at that time. And uh, the uh, a senior Hamas official recently said that given the opportunity, Hamas would repeat the October 7th massacre again and again until Israel is destroyed. That is the nature of our enemy. Another top leader told the New York Times, I hope that the state of war with Israel will become permanent on all borders. But yet somehow, far too many Americans, including Jews, young Jews, believe that Israel is the problem. And it's very troubling threat to young Jews. At Cornell, one professor said he was exhilarated by the massacre. Uh, Jewish students were cornered in a library in Cooper Union by pro-Hamas protesters. At Tulane University, a Hamas supporter broke a Jewish student's nose with a megaphone. Swastikas were drawn at high schools in California and Connecticut, and students marched through the hallways of a San Francisco high school chanting, From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which is a call for the destruction of the Jewish state. So, it's especially heartbreaking to see such brazen anti-Semitism. Now, the Jews are, are commemorating the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, when the Nazis murdered nearly 100 Jews back in 1938. They burned and smashed Jewish homes, businesses, and synagogues, and they sent 30,000 Jewish men to concentration camps. So that was in 1938, and here we are, years later, and the same thing is happening, more or less. I mean, not the violence, but the anti-Jewish demonstrations taking places even in places like the United States. So the Jews are trying to do something about that. And the first thing they're doing, apparently, the, 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 uh, as I'm, uh, uh, I'm recording this program on uh, Tuesday night, and uh, tens of thousands of Jews are gathering in Washington, D.C. for a pro-Israel march. They're trying to show their support for Israel, call for the release of the hostages, and uh, against the rise in anti-Semitism. So this, this, mo this moment transcends politics and generations and actually uh, religions. Because Hamas is not interested in coexistence, it's an inter interested in murdering Jews. If, if Hamas cared about Palestinian lives, would they strategically place weapons and command centers among civilians and other hospitals? And then they use their casualties for propaganda? And the leader of Hamas, Ismail Hania, has said that we love death like our enemies love life. Interesting, by the way, as an aside, Israelis do love life. According to the World Happiness Index, Israel is the fourth happiest country in the world. Women, the LGBT community, and people of all religious affiliations enjoy equal rights in Israel. If you're a, if you're a homosexual in, uh, in Gaza, they kill you. 
they'll throw you off a roof. Everything that's good about Israel is the opposite. It's you and Gaza under Hamas's totalitarian rule. The uh, the the Hamas people say yes that, that the entire planet will be under our law. There will be no more Jews, no more Christians. That's what the Hamas leaders say. So you got to listen to them. People didn't listen to Hitler when he said things. They was thought he was only doing propaganda. But it turns out he meant every word of what he said. So we have to take the Hezbollah's threats seriously. They, they recently uh, had a recent surge in threats against Israel, and uh, the the it's terrible. The, the significance is when these bad people tell you what they want to do, you got to listen to them seriously. The, uh, the It's interesting. They're, right now, we're suffering. Hopefully, we're going to eventually beat Hamas, but in the meantime, it's really upsetting the country here. There are people now, more than 40 communities here in Israel have been forced to evacuate. These displaced residents are, are in hotels and guest, guest houses. Their lives have been upended. There are makeshift study areas for their kids. And uh, and it's, it's really a mess. So until we destroy Hamas, our country is going through a real trial because we were not living living normally and this is something we have to we have to put an end to as soon as possible so that's really a problem real problem now I, I want to end this segment of my program I've been wandering all over the map for the last 20 minutes but I want to end with something because these are things that I have in my mind and I want to share them with the listeners because I really think they're important. The, uh, what are, what are, a true American interest is a strong Israel. A strong Israel constitutes a secure democratic axis and if Israel is weakened, it won't help the Americans in their struggle against what's happening in other parts of the world. America's in a struggle against the Sunni and Russian efforts to supplant them in the Middle East, and weakening Israel would be immediately translated by our neighbors, uh, who are also allies in the United States or other Arab countries who have made peace with Israel, and they're watching how the United States respond to what's happening in Israel. If the United States, in one form or another, betrays us, not big betrayal, but not helping us to the point that we that we really need because we're defending the Western world. If the United States, in a sense, doesn't support us, the other allies are going to, who, of the United States are going to be watching this. So the, uh, the American administration is really important for itself that it, that it strengthened Israel because if Israel is not strengthened by the United States, our neighbors in this area will look differently upon the United States. That'll change the whole region. So it's really important that the United States stand by Israel 100% because we are fighting for Western society. 
And if we don't get support from the leader of Western society in the United States, this is going to be noticed by everybody else, and it won't be banned from Judeo-Christian society. Uh, so I, I've wandered a, a far afield during this part of the program. You'll have to forgive me. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro. You know, it's absolutely fascinating how the American Jewish community can do things when they're under pressure. It's interesting that uh, we talk about Judaism, and the word Judaism, essentially, as I understand it, refers to the aspects of uh, Jewish life that have to do with religion. Uh, you know, the, the Judaism ranges from uh, far Orthodox to far Reform. But Jewry, J-E-W-R-Y, essentially represents the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with religion. Jewry is the Am Yisrael, the Jewish people. And when the chips are down, Jewry really knows how to respond unbelievably Back during the Six-Day War, when I still lived in the United States, the war started, as I recall, on a Monday morning. And on that Wednesday, we went by bus from Philadelphia down to Washington to a big rally supporting Israel. <clears throat> but by that time, that Wednesday morning, the tide of the war had already changed, the Six-Day War, and Israel was way ahead. Now what happened now, the present situation, about 200 or 250,000 demonstrators gathered in Washington for what they called the March for Israel to demand the release of the hostages and demonstrate their determination to combat the evil that's taking place. The... Uh, there was uh, the at the at the rally. Interestingly enough, the humming of Hatikva, the Jewish national anthem, carried throughout the crowd for what seemed to be miles, while Israeli flags painted the multitude of attendees in blue and white. Turned out that the rally was organized by the Conference of the Presidents of American Organizations and the uh, various Jewish, insta uh, Jewish federations in North America, the uh, estimated in the day, estimates during the day named the rally as the biggest one in support of Israel in history. Before the rally started, students and youths gathered before noon at a special pre-march rally for Israel and uh, it was sponsored by various Jewish organizations and Jewish day schools and uh, high schools are in attendance. Interesting, uh, I watched television and the head of the Jewish Federation in Philadelphia was uh, interviewed and they said they brought 40 buses 
from Philadelphia. I don't know how many people get into each bus, let's say 60. So we're talking about a lot of people. Charter planes were, uh, planes were chartered for the rally and brought people from all over the United States, including a lot of uh, school children. A lot of speakers, including members of Congress and um, the uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer spoke, House Speaker Minority Johnson, Mike Johnson, Schumer's a Democrat, Johnson's a Republican, the House Minority Leader is a Democrat, and a Senator is a Republican, and everybody showed their support of the Jewish state. They expressed the disgust at the uh, um, uh, atrocities, and they explained that a call for the ceasefire is ridiculous, and uh, they also heeded the dangers of the ignorant rhetoric being spread around accomplished campuses. As a matter of fact, uh, Jeffries, who is not Jewish, has uh, said that the, the, the rhetoric being spread around the college campuses is a cancer. And uh, really, the, the uh, all kinds of people, all kinds of politicians were there. It was really very moving today. Uh, and uh, it's really something to see that the American people, the congressmen, realized that Israel's fighting the fight for America also, uh, because we're fighting extremist Islam, which is in a war with the... Uh, with the Judeo-Christian Judea world, and these congressmen recognize that. They, uh, and uh, it really was something interesting, and it's really very hard. It's hard, really moving. The, the, uh, the, uh, they spoke, all these people spoke, and they all spoke, of course, in favor of Israel, and it really was something to see. As I said, I attended a big rally like that back in the time of the Six-Day War, and uh, now they have this. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it, when you think about it for a minute, it's, it's a pity that rallies have to be held. But uh, we're, we live in a, in a difficult world, and hopefully these rallies are helpful in gaining support uh, from, from the communities, not just the Jewish community, to fight this terrible evil. And uh, that was really something. By the way, activities against uh, terrorism are not just taking place in Gaza. That, that's getting the big headlines. But um, the, it's the same thing happened in the West Bank. Tulkarim is a big Arab city in the West Bank. And the Israeli army conducted an operation overnight uh, Tuesday night in the West Bank, in the city of Tulkarim, and uh, there were they have a list of the wanted individuals, and um, over the course of the operation, uh, uh, seven terrorists were killed. The, shortly after the arrival of the Israeli security personnel, a fighting broke out between the soldiers and the local terrorists, in other words, the local terrorists were heavily armed. They fought the soldiers. They exchanged fire between the two sides. And according to the Israeli army, 
an Israeli UAV targeted a squad of armed combatants who had previously launched explosives at the Israeli troops. Later, they destroyed an explosive laboratory and discovered dozens of explosives on the roads by the Israeli forces were found. It took 15 hours, but it was a coalition of a bunch of Israeli uh, troops, the different brigades, the Kfir Brigade, the Combat Engineering Corps, the Harub Battalion, the Duhafat Battalion, Dudavan Reservists, the Shin Bet, and the Border Police. So it took all these groups, and this fighting took a overnight into Karim. It didn't get the big headlines. Of course, the big headlines are Gaza, but there is a fight against a terrorist in other areas that are under control of the Palestinian Authority. And as I said, doesn't get the big headlines, but it's happening. Another item that doesn't get the big headlines is the fact that the uh, the uh, a foreign minister of Israel announced that the Gaza crossings will not reopen. There are openings between Gaza and Israel itself where tens of thousands of um, Arabs come across to work in Israel every day. And uh, the understanding is now that Israel uh, that will no longer open these contacts between Israel and Gaza. There won't be a connection or, of goods. There won't be a connection of people, including workers. There have, there have been several crossings that have been the sole passageways between Israel and Gaza since the IDF withdrew in, the, for the, in 2005. One is at a place called Kerem Shalom, which is the major commercial passageway for goods to enter Gaza. And one is at a place called Erez, which is primarily the passage for pedestrians. The, there is a third uh, landing out of uh, Gaza at a place called Rafah, which is controlled by, uh, by Egypt, but it's not designed for heavy commercial use. And Israel closed the Karen Shalom in Erez after the attack on the 7th of uh, October. And uh, that's the situation now. Israel is now saying it was the, Israel does not plan to reopen these passages even after the hostages are released. The, uh, it's interesting, by the way, all this is something under the headlines. But our foreign minister said he favored a plan under being discussed now by which goods would enter and exit Gaza through a sea route between Gaza and Cyprus. From, uh, there's long been an argument Gaza would benefit from a sea route rather than relying on land transportation. But it isn't until now that it's been envisioned as a replacement for the Israeli crossings. So the um, they're planning what to do when this is over. So uh, uh, again, it's something that's under the headlines, but it has to do what's going to happen after Hamas is wiped out and Israel gains control of the Gaza Strip. There, there's no possibility, I think, 
of a Palestinian state would include both Gaza and the West Bank. The, the Israeli-Gaza crossing has been the central traffic point because the Gaza and West Bank economies are integrated with the Israeli one. And the bulk of Gaza's exchange of goods is with Israel and also with some Palestinian areas in the West Bank. So, um, interesting enough, by the way, while I'm on the subject, all these three entities, the PA governed territory in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel use the same monetary currency. They have similar pricing structures and part of the same customs arrangement. And that's been going on for years now. So uh, it's presumed that eventually maybe the, the Gaza and the West Bank will be linked on some kind of a Palestinian state. But I don't think that is going to happen. The, the, the American and European officials are, are planning to push a two-state solution and, uh, and to link the two territories. But, uh, but uh, our own prime minister said he supports a rebuilt Gaza for the Palestinians, but run by a newly created Palestinian government not related to the Palestinian Authority. And we also insist that Israel must maintain security control. The, uh, the idea of Palestinian status is simply not on the table anymore. The, uh, it's true that Israel may have an obligation to facilitate and supply basic humanitarian aid, but nothing more beyond that. So when this fighting is all over, we'll be in a new and interesting situation. By the way, another footnote. Uh, during uh, the fighting in uh, Gaza, a uh, hundred members of the United Nations staff working in Gaza were killed. And uh, that, that's a fact. So uh, uh, I'm just reporting it as, as, as reported here by the Israeli news. You know, it's interesting, after the Second World War, the United States and Western powers took over control of Germany, and uh, they took over control of Japan, and then one of the first things they did, beside putting the uh, people on trial for their, what, their misdeeds during the war, they also took control of the educational systems in those countries to see to it that they would learn about democracy. And we see now that both uh, Germany and Japan are very democratic countries. And up to the Second World War, they were totalitarian regi regimes. And by taking control of the education system, the Allies changed them. And now they are totally different than they were before. So if you look at the situation now, Gaza can only be, the, the, the Palestinians are not being accepted by the other Arab countries. They're going to stay there. They're going to be under Israeli control. But the communities can only be rebuilt if they're not situated uh, under a hostile government 
uh, and this, it, that would be capable of developing military infrastructure and training commando units and, and educating people against Jews and against the state of Israel. So the um, eliminating Hamas as a movement is much more difficult than toppling its rule. The, the uh, Israel must convincingly exhibit its capacity not only to decisively triumph over its adversaries, but the um, they have to uh, etch into their collective psyche the specter of an overwhelming and irrefutable defeat, what like happened to Germany and Japan after the First World War. So they have to gain control of uh, Gaza. They have to dismantle the government. And uh, they got to take over the educational system, uh, which is really quite important. It has been suggested, by the way, when the leaders of Hamas are uh, captured, they should be subjected to, uh, to uh, trials, like was done to the Eichmann trial and to the German criminals after the Second World War. It is of utmost importance that these people, these leaders, face justice in an Israeli court. I mentioned previously, previously uh, on this program that they have to set up some kind of judicial system. Maybe they'll have to pass some special laws to do so, because they have to hold these people accountable. And uh, only through a... a public justice system will this have really have an effect as I mentioned previously the uh, the legal foundation for such a move is already in place there's something called the Nazi not the, the Nazi Nazi collaborators law of 1950 which is a retroactive statute meaning it extends to offenses committed prior to the enactment of the law. So this law can be amended to include uh, crimes against humanity and genocide uh, that happens now. It would satisfy a long-standing demand from legal experts for explicit recognition of war crimes within Israeli law, but it would also empower Israel to try the heads of Hamas for the horrific crimes that they're guilty of. And a trial of this nature would serve a dual purpose. It'll provide a platform for, uh, for, this to, to, uh, for the, the survivors of the massacre to share their harrowing stories with the world, which is what happened during the uh, Eichmann trial. And... Uh, and it presents Hamas not only as a ruthless criminal organization comparable in cruelty to the likes of Nazi Germany, but also an organization that has been decisively defeated. It must be decisively. It's interesting, by the way, a historical precedent reveals that war criminals often appear pitiful and absurd when defending themselves in court. Even in the eyes of their own supporters, if found guilty, the appropriate course of action would be to subject them to the same fate 
as Adolf Eichmann, which is capital punishment. This must be done in front of the Jewish people, in front of the global audience. In other words, by putting these people on trial, it also shows that we maintain our commitment to civility and refuse to descend into the, the savagery that these people did. In other words, our pursuit is not vengeance. Our pursuit is justice. And, uh, and, uh, and that, that is what this is all about. We, we are not looking for vengeance. We're looking for justice. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week in Mir Hashem.